Welcome to the Embracing You podcast with your host, Eric Pothen. We are all on our own unique journey to discovering ourselves. Each episode, I will help you navigate the journey within to reconnect with and discover the innate love you have for yourself. This podcast will cover topics from self-love to eating disorders and body image to mental health and to overall well-being. My goal is to help you honor and embrace yourself so you may live your most authentic life. Let's dive in. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Embracing You podcast. I am super excited for this episode that I have created for you all, Um, and it features a very special guest. Um, You may recognize this name that we have on our episode today, and that is Tyler Henry. So Tyler Henry, star of the Netflix series Life After Death with Tyler Henry, continues to be the most sought-after clairvoyant medium both in the United States and around the world. His first television show, E! Entertainment's mega-hit Hollywood Medium with Tyler Henry, showcased his unique gift of communicating with the other side and his ability to bring comfort, closure, and hope to his clients and viewers. In his new Netflix series, Tyler demonstrates how he uses his unique gift of communicating with the other side to bring comfort, closure, and hope to his clients. Tyler's goal has always been to aid in the grief process and provide validation and closure through his one-on-one private readings, his TV show, his book, and now his live shows. Tyler began receiving intuitive mental images when he was only 10 years old with the foretelling of his grandmother's death. As he continued cultivating his gift, sometimes even by reading his classmates, word began to spread around his small California hometown. As a teenager in Hanford, Tyler began thinking of a way to incorporate his gift into a career. He graduated high school early and began taking college classes to become a hospice nurse as he believed his calling was to help people comfortably transition to the other side. At the same time, he continued to cultivate his ability by doing private readings at a local bookstore. So there's just a little information about today's special guest. Um, And like I said, I'm incredibly excited to be able to share this unique interview with you all with Tyler Henry on trusting your intuition. So without further ado, uh, let's dive in. Well, hello, Tyler. How's it going over there? Hello, hello, Eric. I'm so glad to be spending the time with you today. I'm looking forward to chatting. And thank you so much for your time in advance. I mean, I know you're probably a pretty busy guy out there in California right now, and I'm incredibly grateful for your time and for you to be here with me right now as well. Absolutely. Likewise, I'm looking forward to delving in. Wonderful. So to get started out, um, first of all, I'm incredibly fascinated with the work that you do. Um, For those that might not know about your work, uh, would you be able to talk about what you do and the ability that you have? Uh, Maybe when you've noticed that you had this ability? Absolutely. Well, there's certainly a lot to it. Uh, I am a clairvoyant medium and clairvoyant derives from a French word. It means uh, clear sight. So it's just a way in which I receive intuitive information. And as a medium, I really just act as an intermediary uh, between this realm and the next. 
And um, that is an, kind of an adage that goes back uh, long into the history of shamanism. But in its modern day kind of recurrence, um, that's in essence what I do. I sit with people, do readings that are intuition based and share with them what I'm getting. Awesome. Cool. So how has your ability to be a medium, how has this affected your life and kind of how does it affect your life today? Well, it definitely has shown me the importance of living an intuition-based lifestyle, um, the importance of self-reliance, of being able to be mindful, and the importance of really checking in with how you know I feel as I navigate my life. I think so often you know we are distracted with the beeps and the buzzes of our phones. Uh, we really are overstimulated as, as a society. And so that really does take away often from our ability to be mindful, to really be in touch with uh, the feelings that might be there in the present moment that we might not be noticing for what they are. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so today's episode is all about trusting your intuition. Um, how would you define intuition? Well, I would look at the actual etymological root of the word, which is just inner tuition or inner knowledge. And so I view spiritual intuition and intuition in general as all kind of deriving from some greater source of insight. Um, I think of intuition as something that gets a bit of a bad reputation in the sense that it's thought of as being uh, kind of ephemeral uh, and maybe a little airy-fairy. But in reality, I think intuition has a great practicality. I think everybody gets a first impression, and that's an excellent example of intuition. Um, and I kind of go back to the earliest spiritualist literature on the matter. Um, William Walker Atkinson was an author who talked at length about intuition and described it as the highest form of all reasoning. And that definition has always stuck with me because it's so different than what we think of as in the modern era. We think of intuition as being feeling-based. But his argument was that the more we nourish our intellect, the more our intuition can work with to better ourselves. Yeah, so I feel like that perfectly leads into my next question that I have for you. But what does it mean to trust your own intuition? Well, I think there's many aspects to trusting one's intuition. One has to be able to identify what that is, and then one has to kind of make the effort to then you know implement some change into their life, either going with a pull to do something or going with a pull to not do something, as we are often faced in life with intuitive moments. So um, I would just say, yeah, generally intuition is that kind of inner knowledge that allows us to discern. I think discernment is really a key word. Um, again, kind of deviating from the airy-fairy reputation that it gets, I think intuition is very much just the ability uh, to tell between things um, and to identify the boundaries between things. And, and that alone is, is very liminal. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, when I think of intuition, I feel like my definition is pretty similar to yours. And I believe intuition is inner knowing and it's the ability to notice a thought or something that comes to your mind within and believing it to be true without gathering evidence um, and basically believing this is true because my mind is telling me it's true and kind of without second guessing and just trusting that voice within. Sure, certainly. So the last episode of the podcast was all about self-awareness. To me, these topics blend very well together. Um, where do you see the connection between self-awareness and trusting your intuition? 
Well, I think self-awareness and trusting your intuition are integrally linked. I think that in order to recognize your inner tuition, you have to be able to recognize what's going on internally at a given moment. And so very often our thoughts and our patterns are oriented towards past trauma um, and sometimes future fear and anticipation. And so very often we get taken away from that present moment. You know, I think back to when we are children, um, how different we often are uh, in the sense of that sense of wonder that is um, just a part of that childlike experience. And very often people lose that. Um, and I think if you look at kids, they're a great model for how to really live more spiritually, being more present, and really always having a sense of awe. <laughs> yeah. Where do you think we lose that sense of curiosity from childhood into adulthood? Sure. I think you see a lot of different examples. Um, I mean, it certainly varies, but very often around puberty, people seem to acknowledge a reduction in intuitive experiences. So very often children will report seeing loved ones who have died, maybe ones that they never got to meet, um, but their family will notice them either speaking or connecting or uh, knowing things maybe that they shouldn't. Uh, as we get older, I think we become less imaginative, just generally, societally. Uh, we're told, you know, it's all in your head, uh, you know, get out of your imagination, you know, get real. Um, these are all kind of platitudes that we hear in one way or another that really represent the fact that I think we are very much molded, particularly around the time that we hit around puberty, to kind of, if anything, shut down those imaginary or imaginative-based experiences. And to speak to that, I think that when we use the word imaginary, that has a bit of a negative connotation, but I really don't think that imaginary means false. I think when we talk about truth, going back to what you said with your definition of intuition as being kind of believing in something without evidence, I think that on some level, one has to make the discernment between objective truth, which is quantifiable, and subjective truth. And subjective truth being more feeling-based, feeling being the key word. So. Um, intuition definitely, you know, I think falls into that, that second category. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I feel like comes back to my mind that I heard in a podcast is that the older we get, the more we need to unlearn a lot of what we have learned from our childhood. And I think it's almost the exact opposite in this instance where, you know, when we're a child, we're told to explore and imagine and kind of step into this space of creative thinking and not second guessing and really allowing ourselves to just be. So my question for you then is, how do we bring ourselves back to that childlike state where the imagination is able to be accessed and we're allowing ourselves to be a little bit more freer in our own thinking. Absolutely. You know, I'm a big proponent of Carl Jung, who was one of the forefathers of modern psychotherapy. And his real belief was that just generally, uh, you know, we all are kind of embodying really a combination of different archetypes. And uh, archetypes being really patterns that exist on many different levels. And our inner child um, is certainly one that, that comes up, one that we all share. And we have to be careful, I think, in the sense of embracing our inner child too much, because you then get into something that he called the pure Aternus, uh, which I think is best kind of described as like Peter Pan syndrome. And I think a lot of us probably know people who are almost childlike by nature and almost to an extreme, right, where maybe they 
can't maintain certain uh, consistencies that are socially acceptable, certain norms, responsibilities, so on and so forth. So we want to avoid kind of being away with the fairies in that sense. And Young warns of that, but simultaneously being able to be mindful of our inner child um, by being able to be present by meditation, by uh, the shadow work, which is a huge thing that he discusses, going inward and looking at our innermost vulnerabilities, uh, traumas, you know, experiences, and, and trying to look at them from a more agnostic, objective way versus necessarily being defined by those experiences. Yeah, absolutely. It's from what it sounds like, it's all about trying to find that balance between where do we still allow our logic brain to be useful and beneficial towards us, but then how do we balance that kind of with the more imaginative side that we have when we are at those younger ages? Absolutely. You know, I think of even handwriting as being very powerful, as funny as that sounds, and we do it a lot when we're kids. But it's something we often kind of lose, especially in the modern era where everything's typed or texted. Um, I think journaling has great value creatively. Being able to put pen to paper, being able to practice self-expression, I think is vital. Um, From my work, I've really learned the importance of striving to be more of oneself. And we really do that only when we can get in touch with ourselves, when we can get acquainted with who we are um, beyond what we necessarily think of ourselves as. And that requires a lot of, you know, uh, inner work. So I think it all benefits ourselves and allows us to be a a kind of more whole self. Absolutely. And I've found in my own personal experiences with journaling is that I could be thinking about X, Y, and Z up in my head and be ruminating about it all. But it is a completely different experience for me mentally when I take the time to go to my journal into physically write out on the page a lot of the thought processes that have been going on in my mind. And they also become a lot more clear and a lot more organized when I take the time to go pen to paper and dig a little deeper. I love that. And I'm going to actually implement that more into my own practice. It reminds me of the famous quote, your word is your wand. And I find it very true in readings. I find it to be true in kind of the inner narratives we tell ourselves, but even in how it applies to you know diary entries, it allows us to kind of solidify or affirm what's going on internally in a way that is looking at you back in the eye. Um, and there's something just deeply introspective. It's like looking into a mirror. Uh, and I think that that alone is just a great start for people who really struggle maybe with getting to know themselves. Yeah. Do you think journaling, I'm just kind of thinking about this right now, but do you think journaling allows for a combination of both the logic mind and the imagination to kind of play out as one is going through the process? Absolutely. I mean, we see it in the knowingness of of kind of the tradition of automatic writing, which has origins in spiritualism in the mid 1800s. The idea that people would put pen to paper and get into a meditative state and just freely let flow, almost being a vessel or an intermediary or a medium um, for information outside of themselves. And we see that even, you know, even with with certain aspects within uh, therapy, there are certain verified, you know, Western scientific minded institutions that use free thought uh, writing as a means of getting kind of what is in out. And so, you know, whether you take the more spiritual approach or the more uh, logical side, both have seemed to have therapeutic effects in writing, journaling, and just kind of free thought, free form expression. 
Yeah. So as you are doing your work then, so let's say you're doing a reading, um, as you are relaying information, how much of that is free flowing as it's coming to you and how much do you feel like you kind of have to process and filter a little bit before you then communicate that to whomever you're doing the reading for? That's a great question. And actually one I've never been asked. And I would say if I had to describe it, I would kind of say that in the way that it comes through, it's, it's almost unfiltered. And then it's my responsibility as the intermediary, as the kind of interpreter of the information to put what I'm getting in a way that's tactful not necessarily filtered, but uh, maybe refined. <laughs> and I think that's a, a good way to view it. So it's not that I withhold necessarily bad news or difficult subjects, but I'm very conscious of the way that I deliver it and the impact that my words have on the person I'm sitting in front of. Absolutely. Yeah, that I could only imagine what that would be like in your shoes when you're doing a reading and you're having all of this information come to you and you really do have to trust yourself and you do have to trust, you know, your ability um, to to do the work that you do. Um, and I just think that's a beautiful testament of what can happen when we do choose to trust our intuition and choose to trust that voice within. Absolutely. And I think it begs the question of really how do we tell the difference between our intuition and our feelings? You know, you and I both, I think, are, are very active thinkers. We're very busy mentally. And I know that sometimes it's probably easy for us to uh, get wrapped up in, in maybe our triggers or what we're afraid of, at least speaking from experience. So I would say um, when we posit that question, it's important to think of intuition as maybe less feeling-based, but more as just an inner tuition that kind of comes to the surface. And I always tell people, you know, if you are going about your day and you get an intuitive hunch and it taps into something that you have previous trauma around, it very likely is not an intuitive hunch. It very likely is that trauma coming to the surface. I give the example of, you know, maybe a person whose partner cheats on them and maybe their relationship before that partner cheated on them, maybe even the person before them. So then when they go to meet person number four, whoo, their first inclination is to assume, you know, homeboy is going to be a cheater. Um, and that's not intuition, that's trauma. So I think uh, it's good to know that intuition will come through a little bit more agnostically, less emotionally. We might have certain responses or reactions to what we're getting a sense of, but that sense generally, no matter what it is, will usually come through as just this knowingness um, over necessarily something that's emotionally, like the movies where someone feels compelled to just you know, drop everything and stop a plane from crashing. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that picture you just painted right there. And I feel like it's making me think a little differently, um, when, especially when, you know, I'm having those moments where I'm like, oh, is this in my intuition speaking to me or do I need to take a step back? And is this some sort of response to a past event or someone in my past? Or like you had just said, is it more trauma bonded? if you will. Um, sure. And so I think I'm really curious to know, you know, as people listen, what they think of, you know, this separation of, you know, how you view that inner tuition of, you know, it being less emotion based and a little bit more, you know, you said agnostic, agnostically based. Yeah. And so 
I love it's it's even it's making me think so much. So thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, of course. No, absolutely. I love that you bring such great thoughts out and you have so much to contribute. The question you'd asked, I'd never been asked before. So it's a testament to your skill. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, so I guess this leads to the next question that I have for you is what do you think could happen if our inner tuition, I feel like I'm going to start switching to saying that I like that a little bit better than intuition, um, tells us something and we choose to act differently than what it is telling us. Well, you know, you have to ensure that it's genuine intuition speaking to you. But if we do differ from what we genuinely feel, very often we go back and and can see in hindsight that maybe we made a choice that led to unfavorable results. Um, You know, I've had a number of of people that have sat in front of me who have been the victims of violent crime, who have told me that in their interactions with the person who victimized them, the moment that they met them or saw them walking down the street, you know, there was this intuitive sense of, I need to cross the street, I need to get away. And a good amount of these people, you know, didn't cross the street, they didn't get away, they didn't go with that hunch. Um, so I think it's like, important to balance, you know, our mindsets to not become neurotic or hypervigilant, which I think for people like me who may be a little atypical neurotically, <laughs> I think I might be inclined to, to go down that path. Um, it's just important to, I think, show hypervigilance. Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Gift of Fear. It was written by Gavin De Becker, and he really talks about how there is actually um, some value in fear as an instinctual self-preservation mechanism that we shouldn't demonize it or make it a bad thing spiritually. They can actually serve a purpose in our life. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've heard something similar with regards to anxiety in that we need to experience anxiety, um, I feel like in order to help us move forward. And it's normal to feel anxiety. And I think for those that aren't as familiar with anxiety, and I I have a lot of experience (laughs) with living with anxiety myself, that it can be definitely something that individuals might be afraid to lean into a little bit more as well. So I definitely see a parallel between You know, it is healthy to be fearful and it is also healthy to feel anxiety as well. Absolutely. You know, that the fear is the thing that keeps us running when a bear is chasing us. Fear on some level is why we look both ways when we cross the street. Uh, You know, I think it gets a a bad rap (laughs) for sure within reason. Yeah. So another question I have for you is um, I know that when you are doing your work, it sounds like you depend upon your intuition a lot as you're doing your readings. Um, what does it look like for you to follow that intuition in your everyday life outside of your work? You know, I would say it's harder to follow it in my day-to-day life than it is in readings because within the kind of realm of readings, people are expecting intuitive messages. They're expecting uh, you know, that to come through and something be significant. In my own day-to-day life, you know, I might get a feeling about a friend's boyfriend or I might, uh, you know, get a sense around somebody I know that maybe they're making a choice that might lead to a bit of a, a negative outcome. Um, but, you know, I also, and I, to be fair, I want to correct myself, I'm very careful in what I view as necessarily positive or negative. I think there's constructive and destructive um, and events can be both. Um, but Sometimes I'll get an inclination that someone's going to deal with hard times and, and that presents some challenges kind of interpersonally. So I much prefer to keep it in the reading room. 
Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I'm a little bit eager to ask because, you know, when you get a lot of these things that come to you, how often do you actually choose to tell those individuals, especially if they are close to you? Sure. Well, for people close to me, they just kind of accept that it comes with the territory and that it's part of it. And most are, are open to it if they're close. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I choose to, again, to deliver anything I get with as much tact as I can, whether I'm speaking to a stranger or a family member. Um, I, I really view that job as something that has to be done justice. And so no matter who I'm sitting with, I try to kind of uh, always give it the dignity it deserves. But I also have learned that there's a time and a place for readings. And just as some have wondered, you know, why I might not read somebody in the grocery store, um, I have, you know, as a teenager and then learned that that wasn't always the right time or place, maybe necessarily to share a message from someone's dead loved one. So as I've gotten older, I've learned, you know, temperance and um, just the importance of time and a place. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for answering that, my mind. I was just a little curious to know. Um, how that kind of plays out for you on your day-to-day -day basis, because I'm sure they come quite frequently. Um, and so I guess another question I have for you um, is, what benefits do you think there are for people that choose to trust their inner tuition or their intuition? I think it's affirming. I think when we trust our intuition and we see a validation of it, I think it gives us a sense of personal affirmation, personal empowerment. Um, you know, I, I think there's great value in spirituality. And I think intuition is always connected to that in the sense that um, it really is our link to divinity. It is our link to our soul, uh, to a sense of something greater than ourselves. And so I think that alone um, can have immense value in our lives in addition to being a practical inner compass that can be used to our advantage within reason. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's fulfilling from a spiritual perspective to feel less alone, to feel guidance, to feel a sense of being on the right path. Absolutely. So a question that I had another one is, I'm sure that with your particular work and when, and as you are a medium and do your readings, I'm sure there is apprehension from other people, um, who, who might not necessarily believe, I don't know if that's the right word that I want to use, in, in the work that you do. How do you go about that messaging you might hear from those that are a little bit more apprehensious in the work that you do? Sure. You know, I really am a firm believer that people are not afraid of the unknown. They are afraid of what they think they know about the unknown. And I find that to be true as it applies to my work. Um, I have a quote that I kind of talk about in my second book here and hereafter, where I use kind of the analogy of peaches, right? You can be the biggest, juiciest, most voluminous peach on the whole darn tree, and there's still going to be people who hate peaches. <laughs> and when you think of it that way, when you think of ourselves as, you know, um, beating to our drum, in our own drum and being who we are, I think uh, what makes us unique is very often our superpower. So. By nature, I think anything ideological, it becomes a little divisive. You know, people have strong differing opinions when it comes to anything idea-based. And what I do, you know, like politics and religion very much ties into that kind of idea. So I know your work must take a lot out of you physically, mentally. Um, and so I thought I would switch gears just a little bit. But how do you prioritize self-care? 
You know, for me, in the nature of my job being so energy-based, I, I really find solitude to be a valuable way of getting to know myself better, check in, you know, ground myself, recollect. Um, so for me, I, I find that to be very helpful. But uh, anybody who deals with any job or is in any situation where they're taking on other people's energy, uh, whether that's an exchange, verbal, uh, you know, physical, um, I think they have equivalents. Um, in my own life, you know, I kind of think of energy in some ways as almost like cigarette smoke. And if you're around a group of people who are smoking, even if you're not a smoker, you know, you kind of can step away from them and people will still smell it on you. Um, in essence, I think of energy as something very similar. So when we become too immersed in crowds and groups and others, uh, sometimes their energy and our own, I think, become uh, a little harder to distinguish. And that's why it's really important to try to carve out that alone time. Absolutely. So we've been talking for a while, and I know that we've had a couple conversations about self-growth and evolving as human beings. Uh, so the question I have for you is, what do you do to help you grow and evolve as an individual? You know, I would say for me, uh, establishing routines have really helped me uh, be more mindful generally. And I, I think routines have been a, a structure for me in an occupation that's otherwise very anti-structural and it's allowed me to be able to maintain some sanity even things as simple as like brushing my teeth around the same time every day uh having a sleep schedule that's relatively uh you know similar now as you know me personally you know that's a struggle but um having certain routines actually i think have spiritual value and, and it allows us to restore and rejuvenate and sometimes have a sense of control over things when maybe in other areas we don't have much control. So I almost think of rituals sometimes as good compulsions, <laughs> as long as they're not rooted in <laughs> fear or, uh, you know, things along those lines. Absolutely. Well, the title of this podcast is Embracing You. So what advice or words of wisdom do you have for our listeners on how they can embrace themselves a little more as individuals? You know, I think with Young, his statement of striving to always be more of ourselves is something I keep in mind every day as I'm going about my life. And I think we should always ask, how can we be more of ourselves? Developing our interests, our passions, our fears, um, exploring our inner worlds, creating our inner worlds, um, and being a vessel for really divinity, I think can be a, a very good way to look at it. I don't think there's anything woo about it. Um, and I, I think that's a lot of, a lot of practical value. <laughs> so Eric, I wanted to ask you as somebody who's interested in intuition, and when it comes to your own life, um, do you find that when we talk about kind of compulsions and them being kind of actions made out of fear. Um, how do you distinguish personally between intuition and the things that might tell you that inner voice to maybe do something uh, to help self-soothe that might not necessarily be based in inner tuition? That's a great question. And I feel like that's something that I work on almost every day as I kind of navigate a lot of those moments of high anxiety and I'm faced with that um, option of compulsing and, and kind of giving into, you know, a lot of what that anxiety has produced within. Um, and then typically me compulsing is a lot of ruminating. And I feel like when I'm in that ruminating cycle, that, that 
sense of intuition for me gets blurred. Um, but then also I'm tempted to believe that this blurred vision of my intuition is correct when I'm kind of in that heightened or elevated state of anxiety. So it makes it incredibly challenging to differentiate between, you know, is this actually what I need to do? And this is what my intuition is telling me, or is the voice really active in my mind telling me to act differently um, and tell me that, you know, if you do this, then it will be better. And so I think for me, it's making the conscious decision to stop in the moment and really try to isolate, you know, what is, what's going on over here that's really noisy and really loud. And is that my voice or is that anxiety speaking? Um, And then if I'm able to differentiate, oh, that's not my voice, then I take another step back and try to put it in terms of, okay, what does Eric actually think about the present moment and what is going on? And when I can discern between the two, I'm typically better able to choose the direction I want to go moving forward. That makes sense. That really, really taps into the idea of intuition and mindfulness and really just being the observer of our thoughts, right? We can only be so lucky (laughs) when we're able to do that. If only we could do it all the time, but I think it's a good goal. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I know we were just talking about this, but The Untethered Soul. And in that book, it, it talks about the seat of self and how, you know, in these moments, we need to be able to take a step back and be the observer of ourselves in this seat. And when we're able to separate ourselves from being in the seat and taking a look at it from an outsider's perspective, hopefully then we will be better able to move forward as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just taking a beat, I think, is so helpful sometimes. I know in my own mental health, when I'm triggered, if I'm overwhelmed, just taking a beat, taking a moment, uh, you know, to kind of collect oneself. Um, or at least it, move towards that goal uh, by self-recognition. Um, you know, as is talked about in, in that book, I think that really, even if it's just a little buffer, it's enough to be able to sometimes stop yourself from spiraling uh, to know that you are just observing what you're going through. You're not defined by what you're going through. Yes, absolutely. And I think I've been pretty guilty of defining myself in those moments where, you know, I don't respond the way that I necessarily wanted to. And then I just go to beat myself up mode and talk so negatively to myself. I think it's important, an important point that you bring about right here is that we can't define ourselves in those moments of failure. And it's really how we choose to move forward after those moments of, I don't even like to use the word failure, but, um, in those moments where, you know, oh, I maybe shouldn't have taken that step forward. Um, And how do we take that and learn from it? And then maybe it will result in our ability to pause the next time we get into a similar situation like that. Exactly. It makes so, so much sense. It it even harkens back to 
you know, old traditions, um, even in the East, of really trying to slow things down. There's such an emphasis on being present, slowing uh, your breathing, you know, slowing uh, the present moment to be able to witness and observe it. And I, I think that all of these mindfulness practices are just kind of a slowing of what would other, otherwise be a very active mind. Absolutely. What role do you think technology has on our ability to slow down more in the moment? I think technology has made us used to immediate gratification to the point where meditation seems like a really boring game because we can't win at it immediately. You know, there's no pretty colors, nothing pops out. Uh, it's all very boring <laughs> for a lot of people. And so I think if anything, it's made us a lot more ADD as a society um, and keeps us a lot more kind of trapped in that immediate uh, gratification cycle that we get and the self-comparison that comes with, you know, likes and, and views. So uh, I don't mean to be cynical. It's also given people a lot of beautiful platforms and, and you know, connected people in places that otherwise wouldn't be able to through interests and uh, passions. But I think of it as generally something that from a routine perspective has made us a lot less connected to our sense of self and a lot more connected to the outer world. Absolutely. I'd kind of like to rewind a little bit because I would like to flip that question back at you um, when you had asked me, you know, kind of when you're in those states where, you know, you might want to compulse um, and, and maybe not compulse. How do you navigate those spaces and how do you discern the difference between the two? And then how does that also relate to your own intuition? You know, I, I, when I find myself in a particularly triggered state, I think of something that was told to me that had great value. And it was, you know, when you're in an overwhelmed state, think this, think, what is my next thought? And no matter where you're at, what you're feeling, what you're going through, if you can just think, what is my next thought? It can help as we go back to giving that little beat. There's that little separation between our spiraling and, and in our voices um, and maybe the external world. So it allows us to kind of, you know, set more of a clear intention, maybe reframe if we're in the emotional state to be able to do so. But at the very least, I think it helps set the intention of not being defined by the emotions of the present moment. What is my next thought? Um, and I think we should ask ourselves that more. <laughs> Yeah, what do you do if you find yourself not able to necessarily stop that thought process that's going on? You know, I, I think there are a lot of traditions that go back to the importance of breath and breathing. And uh, even in, in cultures that might not necessarily have access to a lot of our modern privileges, they still recognize the great therapeutic value of learning how to breathe, of um, breath as almost being a life force that can be generated and not maybe controlled, but uh, an awareness of, uh, can be made around it. And so I, I would say breathing techniques actually are, are helpful. One question I have for you is, um, what does intuitive eating mean to you? That's a great question. Um, intuitive eating has been a pretty important skill for me that I've learned about within the last year or so. It was actually last summer that I picked up a book about it and um, I thought I was in a pretty healthy space with food and eating. But as I started to read about the actual practice of intuitive eating, it made me realize how much 
growth I still have to do in the space of eating and my relationship with food. Um, and so basically the premises of intuitive eating is really listening to a lot of the internal cues that your body is giving you and trusting that what your body is telling you is what you need as a human being. Um, and so a lot of what the book talks about is, you know, how much we have to unlearn in order to retrust that voice within and, and a lot of those biological cues that our body is giving us. And so one of the concepts is like, you can't believe the food police. And, and that's the voice that's telling you, oh, you shouldn't eat that. Oh, don't eat that extra piece of pie. Um, and so it really is unlearning to relearn how to trust that voice within. Oh, no, it's so true for intuition too. It's, it's deconditioning that conditioning that we've been told and, and structured and formed and being able to kind of like a, like a caterpillar, have freedom from that, be the butterfly, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's always been something now that I try to take with me as I sit down for a meal where I notice my voice is getting really loud on the inside about what it is that I'm maybe about to eat and how it makes me feel. Um, and so it's really learning how to challenge and trust. And I think that's a really beautiful question you just asked. And how we can bring it back full circle to the concept of intuition as well. Absolutely. We, we, we started and then we came back to where we started. Look at that. That was a great question. Well, good. It was a great answer. No, I, I, it definitely applies to, you know, what you do. Yeah, it really does. And I think, I think we all have areas of growth in our life where we can choose to unlearn and trust ourselves a little more. Um, and I think that's where the work lies is really being able to let our own walls down and allow ourselves to be emotionally vulnerable with ourselves to the point that our own ego doesn't get in the way of us growing. Sure. Absolutely. I think of intention as being the byproduct of growth. You think of, you know, like a seed that gets planted in the soil as it comes up towards the sun, there is tension. Um, even as it kind of busts through the surface and goes towards the sky, there's tension. And that tension is a byproduct of that, that very growth, the very light that that plant is, you know, is searching for. Uh, tension is required to get to it. And I think of people almost as being like plants. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes people need help finding intention. And I think... I mean, I'm a big believer in therapy and I think, you know, if, if you might be struggling with finding intention around certain things in your life, then I think therapy would be an incredibly beautiful space for you to enter and or explore to help you find that intention. Yes. Journaling, therapy, all acts of introspection. And I, I think I uh, want to leave the viewer with the idea of, you know, our interests are indications of our calling. 
Um, and if you just really sit with that and ask yourself what your interests are, uh, it may not align with your definition of professional success, and that's okay, it doesn't need to, uh, but it's important that we ask ourselves what our awareness tells us our interests are. And, you know, as spiritual people, we may not necessarily all agree on where we come from, what we are, or even know, um, but I think at the very least, we can all agree that we are awareness. We are awareness. So I think at the very least, that's a good place to start. Absolutely. And I think at least with with our society right now, I feel like we as human beings are being pressured from all around of, you know, we need to fit this certain mold. We need to be doing this certain job. Um, and I feel like we too often take the words from others and believe them to be true and we lose ourselves in that awareness our own awareness in the process absolutely when we live by other people's standards of success if we reach it we're only succeeding by their standards not even our own so it's it's a funny thing it goes back i talk about my second book this uh, old story of like a, a blue a, a man and he has a mask and it's blue and that's what he would like to look like and so he only attracts other blue people um and you know he ends up falling in love and finding the person that he wants to be with but they can't see him because he's hiding under the mask so it's like even when when people like you if you're not being yourself they're only liking a version of you that you know isn't isn't real so just again speaks to the importance of self-awareness so you said you just had two books that you have written. Do you want to walk us through kind of what each one of them is about? Absolutely. Well, I wrote my first book, Between Two Worlds, when I was 19. Uh, and it's considered technically a memoir, but at 19, I joke it's kind of more of a pamphlet because how much life experience does one really have? Uh, but it was kind of a good snapshot of what I was going through at the time of my life. A lot of the questions I've gotten as a result of um, my work on television and then my second book, more recently, Here and Hereafter, uh, was really a compilation of some of the most valuable insights I've learned from over 2,000 readings. Uh, with the idea of, you know, if the departed could do their lives over again, what would they do differently? I'm a big believer that we can learn from other people's mistakes, uh, you know, and I think that can be a very non-judgmental thing. I find it to be true all the time in readings. You know, people come through and uh, with a little introspection, they realize maybe that they had un unintended consequences. Um, so yeah, both of those books are, are kind of where I'm at now. I'm working with third right now, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> awesome. Well, I just want to thank you so much again for your time and for your insight, your wisdom and your knowledge that you shared with us all today. And so I'm sending a lot of gratitude your way right now, Tyler. Oh, likewise, Eric. Thank you so much for coming up with amazing questions, being an amazing conversationalist, and you really give a platform to such important ideas, and you act as such a beautiful vessel for those ideas. So keep up the good work. Well, I don't know about you all, but I find myself still really thinking and processing a lot of the information and wisdom that Tyler shared with us today. Um, during that interview that I was so fortunate to be able to have with him. I wanted to give a final thank you to Tyler Henry um, for his time, for his knowledge, and his wisdom. 
Um, and if you haven't had the chance to, I would highly recommend you head on over to Netflix to watch his show um, called Life After Death. I just finished it probably a month ago and it is just really incredible to watch him do the work that he does. So Tyler, thank you again very much. Um, until next time, please continue to be gentle with yourself, love yourself for who you are and where you are at right now, trust that beautiful intuition of yours, and most importantly, embrace yourself for who you are. Much love.